This episode originally aired as a part of my other podcast, Project Shadow. Over there, I have been doing world-building content for a while, and I'm currently moving it all over to this new podcast. New episodes will be appearing soon. I am currently making all of my old content, including Worldbuilding 101 and Worldbuilding 201, available on this podcast as Season 1 and Season 2 of Mythweaving. I hope you enjoy, and don't forget to have the fun. Today, we are halfway through the five codes proposed by Roland Barth to kill the author, and just so he'll spin in his grave... We're using them to show how you can improve your world building. Today, we're talking about the character code, or the semiotic code, on this episode of Project Shadow. Hello everyone, how are you doing today? My name is Charlie, you might know me better as sci-fi fantasy writer C.E. Dorset, and we are continuing our world building with the character code today. This one, oh, this one, this one can be a bit of a rabbit hole if we're not careful, and I don't mean that in the discussing of it, I mean in the doing of it. This is where many projects go from, I'm world building to get ready for a novel, to I'm world building forever. <laughs> so yeah, be forewarned, be careful, and use with caution. Lots of caution. Let's just get right into it, shall we? Okay, so the character code, which is also referred to as the semiotic code, is useful in that it can, hmm, it relies on connotation. It does not actually contain the information that you would think that it would. Okay. Yeah, this one's hard to explain, but easy to do. <laughs> so sometimes this is called the canonative code, but the easiest way to think about this is this is your character's biography. It's not your character, it's your bio. It's the information about the important groups in your setting, not the group itself. It's the history of the places in your setting, not the place itself. It is the important words, phrases, arts, crafts that are unique to your world and your setting. It, it's, it's the answer to the question, what is this? Kinda. It's what makes it unique? What makes it different? What makes it special? And like I said, th- this is where you can really get lost because understanding how much history, how much backstory, <laughs> I'm trying to find the correct words for this because everything that we're doing is technically backstory. Everything that we're currently doing is technically history because it's world building. But there is a line between how much you need to know and how much you want to delve into. And I am definitely not the person here to tell you where that line is. As a longtime Star Wars fan, 
I have often found it interesting how every thing in Star Wars has a name, a history, a backstory, and a reason for being there. It does. If you don't believe me, get yourself a copy of a visual dictionary. Get your... <laughs> just go to Wikipedia. Every character that you see in the cantina in Mos Eisley has a story, has a backstory, has a name. They all do. This was something that kind of grew over time with the extended universe, but has been something that's been maintained, oddly enough, into canon. To celebrate the anniversary of the, A New Hope's release, a marvelous book titled From a Certain Point of View was released that retells the story of Star Wars, but from the perspective of other characters than the main characters. So, for example, we get to see the cantina scenes from the perspective of the band that was playing. This is something that you can do in Star Wars and do it fairly easily because, well, they have been tracking the names and histories of these characters for a very long time. Now, I'm sure that this has everything to do with artistic integrity and wanting to make sure that Star Wars is the best, best space opera that it could be and has nothing to do with the fact that we need to make toys and each of those toys needs to have a name and a little, at least a little bit of story associated with it so that, well, the children buying it have an idea of how to play with that character. I'm sure it's, that's just coincidence. Nevertheless, it's all there. And so when you're dealing with Star Wars, you can dig and dig and dig into this almost seemingly infinitely deep well of characters and backstories and rivalries and all this other magical, mysterious stuff. That is the character code. It's not the characters themselves. It's the history of the music that's getting played in the cantina, which I am not going to say its name because we, I, I try very hard to have a clean tag, and it has the unfortunate <laughs> nature of sharing the word the its pronunciation with a crude sexual reference. And I don't want to, you know, enrage people by saying it out loud because I, I get those emails. So yeah, <laughs> we can go into the entire history of that musical genre and how it works and why it works and what people want to do with it. Because Star Wars has built that history out. And so, when they sit back and do a show like The Mandalorian, well, on its face value, it looks like they're creating something from scratch. They, they really don't have to. Because most of the history and most of the character ideas that need to be present in such a story previously exist somewhere in the vast library of LucasArts. And thus, they can draw on those things. And yeah, they get to create some new creatures like the Mudhorns and what have you, but for the most part, you're able to deal, dig through this vast, vast library and pull out parts that some people may have forgotten about or some people might not have even known about and put together a good story very quickly and efficiently. 
That's the power of good world building. And that's what we are endeavoring to do when we put this code into practice. But you really have to be careful because when I say a character's bio, this is something that is uh, true confessions of an author and world builder. This is one of the things that floors me every time I go to write a story because I am a gardener, as Gurr likes to say. For those of you who are new to the show or missed the weird joke when it went around, Gurr is George R.R. R. Martin. Um, I, I'm a gardener. I, I like to plant my seeds and see what grows. And so very often when I start a story, I have very little knowledge of the characters themselves and discover things about them as I write. Thus, while this style of writing is also called discovery writing, Sometimes it's called zero drafting, some, which I do not zero draft. I, I try to write clean. I try very hard to write clean, but that's a whole other podcast episode, which if you want me to do that in the future, I can definitely do that. Let me know. But I, I like to be surprised by the story. I, I need to know some basics to get me from A to B, but I, I like to be surprised along the way. And along the way, I will meet new characters and new organizations and sometimes new places. And then in the edit, I have to go back and give them stories. But inevitably, when I begin a story, I have a couple characters in mind. I have a couple settings in mind. I have a couple worlds sometimes when I'm doing a sci-fi story, especially in mind. And this is where, oh, this is where the character code becomes the bane of my existence. And I'm telling you my cautionary tale so you don't fall victim to the same traps that I have over the years. Because how many countries do I need to have on a world map before it's a world map? Do I even need a world map? If the world isn't going to actually appear in the story, but I kind of want to know where the characters are from, do, do I need to work out the entire history of their planet, their species, their region, their city, before I get to them? Or can I just infer some things and a couple lines in their backstory and move on? You see, world building is a glorious and a wonderful thing, and I highly recommend that you do it. But at the same time, world building is a trap. It's one that you can easily fall into. And I have stories that have never seen the light of day because they never got past world building because I had the initial idea and then I started making the world. This is actually what made me into a discovery writer, just so you know. Because in making the world, oh, wait, well, if these two people were in conflict, I need to know why. And oh, it's because of the two different groups that they belong to. Okay, well, those two groups actually came from two different regions, so I need to know the history of those regions, and those regions are part of different countries, so I need to know the history of those countries, and on and on and on down the rabbit hole it went. And by the time I realized how far down I was and exactly how hard it was to breathe down here and get the oxygen necessary to continue working, it was too late. I couldn't see the story anymore. Because the story had become this list of requirements of all the things that needed to be done in world building. And so, unfortunately, the story died down in that hole. 
and it never got written. Don't lose your stories to excessive world building. Put some limits on. This is why throughout this entire process, and I'm about to say it again, so those of you who, who have been listening for a while can probably say it along with me, world building is an iterative process. Let's say it again, this time with feeling. World building is an iterative process. World building is not writing a novel. Novels should, theoretically, be written from front to back. That way you can maintain momentum, you can maintain discoveries. You, you, there are other ways to write a novel. I'm not going to say that they have to be written that way, but it, it benefits them. Worlds do not. Worlds don't need all that detail. Worlds require the detail necessary to tell the story that is going to take place within them. Now, the amount of detail that you build into your worlds, that's entirely up to you. And this is why I've been trying to get you to understand and think about the variant things that you might want to do with your stories. I am an obsessive world builder. I really, really, really am. And so every time I start working on a world, I try to make it universal. I try to look at the world and go, okay, well, this is going to be a fantasy setting. So let me try to construct it in a way that most, if not all, of the fantasy stories that I want to write can all take place in this universe. I do the same thing with my sci-fi. One of the reasons why I'm creating a new fairy tale world that is separate and different from my fantasy world is because, well, the fantasy world that I created really doesn't have room for fairy tale-like creatures. It also doesn't have a lot of world, a lot of room for whimsy. Yeah, should have thought about that when I started constructing it, but I didn't. <laughs> and so now I have to construct another world. And while I have this initial idea for Princess Rescue Squad, I have actually a couple other ideas that I would like to do in this setting as well that would overlap and use some of the other characters. So I'm trying to build up a fairy tale world. This fairy tale world will deal with, well, the elements of fairy tale and be much more open to whimsy and magic. And I've also decided to do kind of a steampunk thing with it because I think that will be fun. But I'm trying to build actual worlds so that anytime I have a fairy tale type idea, I can just use the setting. The setting should be fine. And hopefully better than fine. So you need to know what it is that you're trying to do here. And as such, don't do too much. And this is where we really write ourselves into a corner. Did you know that, that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien intended to write a novel that took place after The Lord of the Rings? Yeah, he actually started it. We have some of his notes and some of his early chapters for it. But he decided against doing it because the world that he had constructed felt complete at the end of The Lord of the Rings. And while life would go on, the idea that evil would arise yet again made it feel to him as though everything that Frodo and Sam and all of our other characters had gone through was for nothing. Even though this new evil, like the two that preceded it, would be less than what had come before because, well, Morgoth was essentially a god 
Sauron was essentially an angel, our new villain would have been a person, and knowing Tolkien, a man. <sighs> but he, he felt that it just wasn't right for him to do, and he stopped. Because the world building that he had spent so much of his life doing in order to have a place for his characters to live and his languages to be spoken felt wrong for him to add anything else to it. And maybe that's good for you. Maybe you're only world building for one novel, and that is perfectly fine. Just beware of your character code. This is the biggest trap. Because, and I know you're probably wanting me to go into, well, how do I write a character's backstory? You ask yourself, well, what did they do before? Who did they do it with? And why did they do that? Anything else is uh, up to you. There, there are dozens of resources out there on how to build good characters and how to do backstory. It's the same rules, for the most part, as making story. But knowing how much backstory each character should have, and each location should have, and each group, and, well, what about the spells and the magic? It can add up. And if you're not careful, this is where your project will live its last days, and it will not see itself forward. So again, if we can return to our mantra, once again, world building is an iterative process, which means write as little as you can here. It feels wrong. It feels so very wrong, but it's important. You see, I am a big fan of the Lean series of books when it comes to how to run a business, and they actually did a book called Lean Content, and I took the Lean Content seminar, and over the years, I've discussed this on numerous occasions, exactly what makes for a lean content, what makes for a minimum viable product in fiction. And I think the answer varies from place to place and from project to project. But honestly, when you're doing your character code, when you're doing your character's backstories, or the backstories for any of the events, or places, or things in your world, less is more. What do you need to know about it? Probably the, the W's, right? Who, what, when, where, why, and how. So just make yourself answer those first, and Unless you have a very elaborate story that you want to get told at this point for it, don't, don't stop yourself. By all means, do it. But be careful that that's not all you find yourself doing. Unless, of course, all you want to do is world building, then more is the fun. <laughs> get lost in it. Have fun with it. But for the most part, just try to answer your basic questions. If you have more, when you come back, Iterate on the idea even further. Add more. Spruce it up. Expand sections. Do what you need to do as you develop the idea, but always try to maintain a bracing simplicity when you're doing this. Because what you'll notice is, oh my, I've had a lot of ideas. Oh, oh my. For example, that story that I posted to World Anvil the other day, the Raven Queen, um, the Queen of the Seven Ravens. Yeah, you see, 
when I actually posted that article because of the way that World Anvil works. And if you're not using World Anvil, not a paid promotion, I actually pay them to use it. It's, it's, it's a good site. It added, I believe, nine to-do lists, to-do items to my list because of characters or places or people or things that I mentioned in that story that needed to be fleshed out. One little bit of backstory became nine or so to-do items. That's a lot. And each one that you add will add more. So be simple, be clear, be effective. Efficiency in world building is not a bad word. Get as lost as you want to get, but don't, don't fall down the rabbit hole. Don't let your story and your world die the way so many of mine have over the years. I hope this episode was helpful to you. Tomorrow we'll go on to the fourth code, which is the referential code, which is similar to this one, but different as you've no doubt noticed in our discussion of Barth's five codes. Yeah, I'm enjoying this and I'm hoping that you all are too. If you have any questions, comments, or topics you'd like to hear discussed on the show, down in the show notes, you'll find a link to the voice message system. Keep it short, keep it clean so I can use it on the show. I would love to hear from you. If you'd rather hit me up on social media, I am C.E. Dorset on both Twitter and Instagram, and you can find a link to everything that I do over at projectshadow.com. If by some miracle you have a buck you can pass my way, in the show notes you'll find a link to both my Patreon and listener support. Listener support for, for the time being, as of the recording of this, is actually waiving their um, percentage for a while to ensure that we get the money, which is awesome for them to do, and I thank them so very much for that. Alrighty. Um, if you thank you to everybody who's already done that. If you don't have any money to do that and you are feeling guilty about that, don't don't trust me. I understand none of us really have money right now. But if you uh know anybody you think would like any of the work that I'm doing, please share it with them. That helps out more than you know. Alrighty. Yeah, that 1,000th episode looms in the future. It's coming ever closer. I have some ideas what I'm thinking I'm gonna do. Anywho, until next time, don't forget to have the fun. Bye.